when 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 I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. Hey, hey, hey! Welcome back to the Masterpiece Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Episode 16. Episode 16. I'm Chandler Halliburton. I'm Neil Andrino. All right. Welcome to the show. What's going on, Neil? Not too much. Just, you know, usual stuff. Trying to do some deals. Unfortunately, no exciting closings for me this week. No, but how's the takeover going? There's always that transition period. Very complicated for multiple reasons. I think the first one being we closed later than the first of the month due to the issues that came up, but rent right. was still okay. my responsibility to collect on the first. Uh, that's the worst. Little tip, if you're closing a place, especially larger, more units, try to close it just after the first of the month, because if you do, it's the current owner's obligation to collect those rents due on the first and then transfer them to you on closing. So yeah. even if someone is late or delinquent or what have you, on the statement of adjustments on the closing, the existing seller is responsible for all of those rents. And if it's on the third or fourth day, it'll just be prorated for 27 days a month or what have you. But that is way better than, say, if you close on like the, the 26th of a month and then five days later you're trying to make arrangements with a bunch of tenants to collect. In that this quickly. case, yeah, in this case, you still, they made you collect the rents for some reason, probably because of the delayed yeah, closing was, stuff. It was a bit of a like, I'm not dealing with collecting rents at this point. I've already told the tenants that the right. buildings were closing. You delayed the closing due to issues that were kind of out of my control, but we delayed the closing. Yep. Um, so he's like, look, you've got to deal with getting the rents. I'm not picking them up. You deal with them. So now we're trying to go back and get those rents. Also, where it's late into the month, um, it can be tough sometimes. The tenants might not necessarily have the cash sitting around. And there's another payment coming up yeah. in five days. So it's... That's the worst, yeah. Yeah, and the, the leases are a bit of a mess. Like the person who owned them before, they're good tenants, but the leases are... Some of them have been there five plus years. They don't have leases. Security deposits didn't all get transferred. So we're going through that fund right now. Um, and, but, you know, we're here end of the month, and you're talking about collecting rents for the first of the month still? Oh, yeah. The standing? Oh, because then, yeah, there's another now they month owe, coming they owe, up. They owe double rent, yeah. which is... I'm expecting to see some bounces on the... Uh, on the withdrawals. Yeah. Um, so anyways, we're, we're trying to get it sorted out as quickly as possible, but it, it's tough, even with contact info and trying to introduce all the tenants, and the tenants are all confused. And Yeah. How often do you find that closings get delayed on, on stuff like this? Um, eh, surprisingly, more often than people think. I, 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 I find, was, yeah, they always get delayed. I, would say, I, I was going to say always, honestly. Like, I, I, like, it just seems like on a commercial deal, it's never as simple as just doing some stuff. First of all, lawyers have more work to do. Yeah, on both ends, they're trying to figure out their adjustment sheets and all this crap. Yep. So there's always and there's always a, a screw up. Like the the seller's lawyer will send over an adjustment sheet, and the buyer's lawyer will find a mix up. Well, they can't just be like, all right, we just add three hundred bucks on. They yeah, that rent whole. roll doesn't reflect what we've got in the leases, which doesn't reflect the rent roll that you sent over earlier. You know, oh, yeah. that's been increased. We need something signed about that, and so or on and so forth. Broker conditions on on the money. There's always like yeah. a little asterisk of like, oh, we got it, but the insurance doesn't show the right payee address by like a digit on the postal code yeah, because the banks worst. just move their office in Toronto three floors higher and you're like yeah does it really even friggin matter like yeah. i it's got their name on there it's got everything else in there uh, but there's and there's so many random little things like that that i find always impact it there's also the aspect of a lot of people in this game are like refinancing to buy another one and I've seen that where they yep. they make the dates like the same, or they're using the same bank for the refi and the buy. So yep. the bank's trying to process through the refi and the buy and the whole works in like that week. And it's just like they and they also hire their own, they elect their own lawyer. So you're dealing with the bank's lawyer, your lawyer, and the seller's lawyer, and they're all just pointing fingers at each other. And you're like, yeah, what do I do? It, it's funny. That's kind of what I'm going through right now because I'm doing the refis that I think I mentioned in a previous episode to purchase. Well, for part of reason is purchasing this um, side property, but then also to gear up for for the development. Um, but it's funny, Igor. He was on our show. You guys have probably, if hopefully, you've watched that one. It's a great episode with Igor, who's a mortgage broker. But then he connects me with a with a bank, and God love him that this bank. It doesn't matter when I say. Sometimes I don't even send them the conditions. They're like, we're gonna need a two week extension. So like, yeah. I didn't even tell you what day it was due. <laughs> like, whatever it is, we're going to need a two-week extension. I could be like, it's six months from now. Like, better make it six months and two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> like, if it's four weeks from now, oh, we're going to need six weeks. It's It always seems to get delayed. So already, I'm, not, I'm supposed to close on that property November 14th. Yeah. Um, and like a week ago, so uh, October 18th, they were like, 
we're going to need a little longer than that closing. I'm like, how do you know already? You haven't even tried yet. <laughs> you know, so I've got to have this preemptive conversation with the seller. Like, hey, you know, we're all going to be good here. But it's kind of embarrassing. But also I knew it was a tight turnaround. And I think yeah. most sellers are fairly understanding of it because they recognize yeah. that like with these properties, it's not like a house. Like a house, you could, yeah, you might be able to flip it around and find somebody that's got cash. They'll just buy the thing and close in two weeks. Like that, that's totally possible. But you're not going to find someone that's just game to, with no knowledge of anything, turn around and close on 20 units for 2 million bucks. Like that's just not, they, yeah. they need to get financing in place. There's all these other issues with enviros and inspections and this and that. So a lot of times they're kind of like, all right, if I go back to market, I'm probably not going to get my money for an extra three months or four months. And there's potential of a bunch of other issues and a ton of other risks. So I really want to back out of this deal because I'm a little cranky that we had to extend by a few weeks. And yeah. they've, they've probably been on the other end where they've been buying that's and they've it. had to extend. That's exactly it. I mean, anyone who's selling a multi-unit, that means they bought a multi-unit at some point and they get the closing delays that come up. Um, and it gets across the finish line. I mean, I know if the financing is in place, but the, if the funds are coming simultaneous or, or as part of a refinance on some other stuff. So there's a lot of moving parts. Um, I'll likely get it done, unfortunately, the end of the month, which is exactly what we just talked about. And so the bank first came back, like, we'll, we'll get it done for November 30th. And I'm like, for like, that's the worst possible day. I'd rather you said. You're probably closing like five houses that day too. Yeah. Well, I would have said I would rather be December 5th than, than November 30th, but that's not a good look. So like, can you please just get it November 25th or something like that so that um, I, have, I have a few days to go meet the tenants and none of them are going to do e-transfer. I guarantee it. It's all going to be cash or checks and we're it's going to be now. a whole thing of like okay so you got to do need transfer Gosh. you don't have an account and like it, it's going to be it's going to be a hot mess but um one thing that i was going to update people on um because i don't know what else has been going on this week actually well, i was going to say one more take yeah i was going to say one more thing on this that's a weird one i don't know if anyone else has heard of this or you have engineering report on the building that's what i said who's requiring the, the lenders requiring that or, or yeah, the so this is a new bank out of ontario okay. that hasn't been lending here in nova scotia yet they're just getting here and they're, they're fairly casual about a lot of things. They're, they're the one that's even potentially willing to take on my Enviro work and, and include it into the construction financing. Mm-hmm. But they want an engineering report of the building. And I was like, what? Interesting. So I've had an engineer report done before. Um, it was cheaper than a, a phase one at the time. It was like 500 it, bucks. Oh, that's it? I mean, that's a really good deal. You can't even get a home inspection done for 500 bucks now. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it was kind of like he was literally there for 15 minutes yeah. in each building. He walked in. And he went into one unit on each floor, walked around the outside, walked around the basement, and was like, all right, I'll get you a report tomorrow. Like, yeah, typically what they're looking for there is um, the life expectancy of, of the property is what they say because they're trying to make sure that the amortization on the loan that they're giving isn't more than the economic life remaining in the property. I know that sounds yeah. crazy because obviously these properties last for a very, very long time, but materials and construction are meant to kind of have an automatic – engineering life. And it's been a while since I looked into it. And, and so this is a, a terrible kind of example, but it was something like, you know, the economic life of a wood frame structure was supposed to be 60 years. And for a concrete structure was supposed to be 90 years or something like that. And then when you factor in that rent caps 2%, so you can't do any maintenance, that might go down. That could, that could effect, impact. <laughs> um, I don't know how much, are we going into it? No, 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 okay. no. Okay. Okay. We're not going to touch on that. Digress. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Because we like to cover what's going on in the news right now following our emergency episode, depending on when this one comes out. Thanks for everyone listening one. to that and giving us some feedback, by the way. Yeah. We, we were a little heated. Yeah. I mean. Chandler in specific. I chose violence that day. <laughs> I was hot. I was hot. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a hot topic and it got some traction <laughs> online. And uh, we're going to revisit it. The dust is still settling on that. And, um, you know. Yeah, but that's, that's for another story. That's not what we're talking about today. But I did have one yes, interesting little on. anecdote um, of, you know, what I've been up to this week. So in order to complete that purchase that I'm doing and in order to load up for the development play that I'm doing, I've been getting some appraisals and, you know, calculating net worth and looking to free up some liquid cash. Burr. I've been burring, man. Um, and I thought it would be interesting for people to hear I don't know. This feels a little bit weird to be talking about, but I, I think this is the transparency that, that people will appreciate. Tell us about your money, Chandler. Tell us about the monies in the buildings. Um, so what I effectively did is is I had two properties, one that I've had for a long time that I knew there was a good chunk of equity in, and then the property that I took over about a year and a half ago and did a substantial renovation to. So 
The first property, again, I've had it for a long time, so it's been refinanced before in the past. This is the, the initial one. We put it up on the screen one day. I bought it way back in the day. Um, so its appraisal now came in at $1.98 million. And I knew that I owed $1.2 million, give or take, on it. Um, this was one of the properties that the appraiser said, hey, you know, if you were more close to market rents, you'd actually probably be about two, 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 three, something like that. But either way, it came in at $1.98. I owed just over $1.2, 75% loan to value, just call 4. it rough 5. numbers, 1.5. So in that property, I was able to clear up two hundred and seventy-five dollars of liquid capital. Boom. Uh, and then on the other project, which was a 15 unit that I think I closed, it'll be two years in May. So I closed it in May 2020, I guess, um, and significantly, significantly renovated that property, probably to the tune of like half a million bucks. Um, I owed nine and a quarter, I think 926. It appraised out at 2.28. So for really rough numbers, the um, refinance I could do was Equity, 75%. Yeah. 1.7 million, um, and then based on what I owed, like I was able to clear almost 800,000 on that property, like 770. Nice work. So together, obviously, those are just over a million bucks. And with that, I'll be able to purchase this next property, which I need, and this is interesting. So the new property being oh, no. quite downtrodden. I know, I know. This is interesting, right? Um, so the new property um, needs a lot of work, and I got an appraisal on it and the appraisal supported the value of 960,000 and the bank was fine with the appraisal however as we talked about in the cap rate episode just because the appraisals there and just because you can massage some things um, the bank still may not support the borrowing and in this case the cash flow of the building mm -hmm. is quite low and i mean they read the news too so they know <laughs> that my ability to increase the revenue on that, on that building has just been hammered. So rather than the traditional 75% loan to value, they would only extend me 65% loan to value. So rather than a 25% down payment, I have to come up with a 35% down payment, which works out to be about 340 because I'm paying 960 for the building. So whatever approximately that is. But long and short is cleared around a million bucks through these two properties. And then I have to put down 340 uh, on the property, I already have like a $40,000 deposit in. So I actually, you know, need to put down 300000 So I will have an additional liquid capital of seven hundred grand, which could then be used for another project. But more likely, the, the real point of this was... Permits. To pay for permits and the, and the like to build my large project, which is a 60-unit uh, plus three commercial new construction project. So this is just kind of a... Uh, explanation of how this stuff works. We've been talking about this at length, and I thought, well, as soon as I have an actual good practical example, I'll show everyone. And so there you are. Um, this is the big burr. Yeah, this is the same model of of raising equity and then uh, pulling that equity out by way of an appraisal and refinance, and then using that equity to do something else and to expand. So why no CMHC? And I'm asked this because CMHC allows you to go to 85% on these buildings. Yeah. I have a reason in my head already, but I'm curious to see what you say. Um, so obviously the more liquidity that I pull out of the properties, that's fantastic. Um, that said, I like having some equity in the property. I like staying away from CMHC um, because I, I, it helps my borrowing and other aspects to have that equity in there. I don't need that liquid cash necessarily right now. Um, and then there's just the repayment. I mean, it's great to push that cap rate lower and lower and lower and get the value up higher and higher and higher, but you do have to pay those loans back. And I like my cash flow situation better at a 75% loan to value rather than 85% loan to value. Also, I'm trying to turn this around. We just talked about how much of a process this is. Yeah. And to get the money in time to close, you throw CMHC in there, I might as well months. add you know, a couple months extra, right? Yeah. So these are my reasons. What are yours? My thought, honestly, for you is that your rents aren't where they need to be to get the maximum dollar out. My thing is I'll CMHC something once I get the rents to the absolute top, and I feel like that's where it's going to be for a long period of time, yeah. and I have no intention to move the building over. Then I'm going to take home 85, again, where I'm starting, and I'm focused on the rapid growth. Then I'll take the 85. The payment doesn't change too, too much um, just because they do a longer AM, yeah. and the rates are a little lower. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's the only thing. So like for you, I wouldn't even recommend doing them right now, where you know that there's still a lot of room to grow on these buildings. Yeah, 
that's where I'd be I'd be leery of it. But uh, anyways, no, that's good that you had that much equity and stuff. I remember when you bought, I think, the, was it the 15? Uh, yeah. You said you did a lot of the rent out of pocket. Yeah, that's another thing we're going to say for uh, an episode where we talk about things that we do differently. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I floated those renovations. So, effectively, a lot of this equity that I'm getting back is just the equity that I put into that property. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it certainly went over budget. Um, Always. You know, it always does, but it's a phenomenal product now that it's that it's all complete, and I got that equity back. So this one, people say like, I got into the property, and like I know I'm not a dime out of pocket. It's like, yeah, sort of. I mean, I guess I got all my equity back, but it's not so simple as I didn't exactly buy it zero down or anything like that. You know, I put a lot of money into it, and here was an opportunity now, a year and a half later, to get that equity out and to go into the next adventure. You had to pay to play. You, you know, technically yeah. you have no money in there now, but like you had to have it there at some point yeah. uh, to get through that year or two that it took to get the work done, plus get the refi and move forward. Yeah. Um, so that's what's going on with me. Very nice. Very exciting. I don't have anything like that going on. I have the other ones I have under contract that will hopefully be closing soon. Yeah. So I'm just working on those. Um, so today, well, I don't think we have yeah. one yeah, single we set topic. We we're, we're trying to address um, questions, I think some common questions that we've received we tend to get a lot of texts from people that know us and they kind of suggest some ideas and a few yep. are just comments that were on posts. So we're going to try and, and delve into some of that um, and just kind of how we how we handle it, how we work with it, and what we think is, is good and it's kind of allowed us to move to where we are today. Yeah, and this week a lot of questions were about the rent control situation. We're not going to delve into that, but one of them that sort of applies, you know, generally speaking um, – when you sort of think about what it means to have a challenge and something come across your desk that is not what you wanted to happen. Um, I, I had multiple people say, I don't know if I want to be a landlord anymore or Same. is it even worth it? Because one, it's harder and harder and harder to make a living and, and do all these things to these properties. And two, you know, you just get dragged, right? Like, you know, people Absolutely. say bad things about you. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't seem appealing. So, Folks that either have been doing it for a while or looking to start it have asked me point blank, should I even bother doing this? Does this change, you know, our, our plans to invest? Um, why do you even do this? Um, yeah, so I'm sure you're getting that question as well. That's what we were talking about it. Um, what I think it's a response to the emergency podcast. The emergency podcast, I got a few people that called me like, you know, I don't know if I want to be a landlord anymore. And I was yeah. like, yeah, I think, I mean, we probably went a little far and a little aggressive on the on the air, but realistically it's all true stuff that you do face especially on the smaller scale um and it can make it very tough so uh, my response to them is at the end of the day i think this is stuff that was always in play not necessarily formalized like rent control but the idea of not necessarily being loved for what you do like it's not a very uh it's not the kind of business where everyone's like oh my god thank you so much for building my house or anything like that yeah it can be Um, a little bit thankless at times and fairly thankless on that front um but at the end of the and it's, it's also was never passive and i think people again this kind of stuff makes it seem bring it more to light that it's not a passive thing because a lot of people who are trying to get into it kind of have this notion i find that it's like buy it rent it like peace out deuces i'm just gonna collect checks um, yeah. but this kind of hones into light like these are the kind of problems that you face and this one's really big because everyone's facing this problem so we're all having to share with it but in every property you buy you're gonna have problems there's always gonna be little problems that mm-hmm. you deal with specifically um and so I don't, I don't think it really changes it when I tell them, like, look, if you were interested in getting into this, I think it's still important to get into it. But then you need to factor in these set stand, these these items when you're looking at your investments and what you're having to do. And so understanding that you might have to put down 35 instead of 25% uh, and kind of working with maybe modifying your model. But if you're unable to yeah. do that, you probably shouldn't be in the business to begin with because it's not, again, it's not a straight standard thing. You can't expect to just come in and follow these systems. It's a business. You need to be able to operate under these ever-changing conditions and mm-hmm. work with that so if this is you know what i mean if this is yep. if this little thing is causing kind of your concern of even doing it then it's something to, to reconsider i think in general yeah but, i think it also and and how this kind of shifts to a larger conversation is this mentality that you need to create of of what how you respond to obstacles um yeah. and i always try to say okay you've got five minutes to feel bad about it yeah. Something doesn't work. You don't get the offer accepted. Uh, a lousy thing happens that, that doesn't go your way. You've got five minutes to be angry and to complain and whatever, feel like nothing's fair, blah, blah. Then you got to get over it. And, you know, I guess our hour-long podcast was slightly more than five minutes. Yeah. But at some point, you have to um, get over it and then plan. 
Right? You can yep. be angry for a little while, but being angry, being disappointed is not going to do anything. It's not going to change anything. So where are the opportunities within the situation, both practical opportunities like, all right, maybe there's going to be more sellers, yep. which is what I alluded to. Okay, maybe this is going to open up some possibilities to buy. Yeah. But then just opportunities to grow and be better. Like I said, I'm going to sharpen my pencil on a lot of things. I'm going to get a bit more diligent in running this as a business. Money in, money out, right? If, if, If I'm going to be constrained to a certain set of parameters, I'm going to operate the best I can within those parameters. So then you take this negative situation, you embrace it, you embrace the struggle. You know, there's all these expressions about, you know, love the failure, celebrate the failure and try to realize that it's an opportunity to get better as cliche as that sound yeah you you learn you'll learn from these things like these changes and any issues and obstacles that you face are actually gonna are gonna help you kind of grow the business and be a lot more astute as time goes on that's where yeah i you know i came into it young and and cocky and kind of thinking i knew it all and some of these old guys have like these principles like i will not do anything unless this happens yeah and now i'm starting to see where those principles come from as time goes on and i actually start to respect them because i'm like used to kind of be a little bit loose, like just shooting at everything and going for everything and going kind of crazy with it. Yeah. I'm realizing you do really need to follow your systems. And the other thing is there's always another deal and stuff like that. You kind of need to keep those ideas in your head mm-hmm. and then kind of work work through it. The other thing is if some of these rules that came out directly just destroyed your model, there's two options. Either you look in a different location mm-hmm. that allows your model to operate yeah, or you change your model model altogether. Again, yeah. that that's, that's just business. Very... Very common. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't say that I'm just going to be like, oh, stomach this and move on. Like I've said a few times previously, and I'm saying it again, I am now looking at different locations outside of Halifax yeah. to make my investments. Um, Which is a sad situation, but but it is the reality, and this is what business people do, and this is why yeah. we need to always be careful of, you know, how we encourage or discourage business in the areas we live. Um, exactly. But... I've mentioned this before that I love to read about this sort of stuff. And when this was all going on and when I had a second to reflect on it, um, I turned to one of these books that I really enjoyed. Uh, It's called The Obstacle is the Way, which I think comes from some, I don't know, old philosophy that's like the obstacle is the path. And it's sort of if by going through these things is how you actually get better at the end result that you wanted to achieve at the end. And a really good example, and I know you like gym analogies, um, (laughs) you don't go to the gym to lift the same weights that you lifted the day before, right? You intentionally lift heavier weights and all those muscle tears, all those fibers like ripping and healing is what actually makes you stronger and better in the end. So by going through what seems like an obstacle or a challenge, you can come out the other side as better. But it is a change of mindset to say, okay, how do I view this as an opportunity rather than a kick in the gut? Because it feels like a kick in the gut sometimes. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think also, like, when you're looking at outside the obstacles, you're looking at, like, people not like, kind of being a little thankless. You got to do it for yourself. Like, you, you got to oh, yeah. yeah. be a part of it that you just do and you're, 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 you're enjoying it for yourself. Like I was saying right before we turn the mics on, like, it felt good, like, when I when I got my first, like, decent-sized property, like, to pull up, and that that's mine. Like, I was like, you know what? I'm, yeah. I'm really proud of this. It's exciting. It kind of gave me a good feeling, and it kind of gave me some motivation to push forward and keep doing what I'm doing. Um, so, and that, I think that's really important, not necessarily looking for, like, general acceptance or, or general excitement for what you're doing, because I don't think you will find that very commonly. Even if you're doing, like, even if you're keeping the rents low and all that, very infrequently will you find someone that's going to be like, I'm super pumped that you bought that building and yeah, and, and you, you know what? That that's everyone's housing. got their own thing. They've got their own thing going on, right? So you yep. can't live for the validation of other people, regardless of what it is. Yeah. Um, and if we go back to our early episodes when we talked about why do we even do this, I know you and I both like the idea of creating spaces and improving neighborhoods, and all of my properties are pretty much within walking distance from my own house because I'm invested in my neighborhood and I genuinely like doing that. So I think there's all kinds of reasons to persevere in general, but specific to this question about being a landlord in this time, I still feel that the equity growth is still going to be there. It's not going to be what it was. Like you will not be able to do what I outlined on these refinances, certainly not in the same amount of time. Like what I was able to accomplish with that property in 18 months is now conservatively going to take two and a half years. Yeah. Um, 
maybe maybe more. Like there there could be even some more obstacles on top of that. Um, you know, but I, I can't even really remember where I was, I was going there. I, I think there's still going to be equity growth there. I think there's going to be chances to get better. I think that I'm going to come out of it on on the other side. Um, much improved. And I think I still am doing my part to make my neighborhood better. And I still have pride in these buildings. And I still enjoy the process. Crazy as it is, I don't know if I'm glutton for punishment. I enjoy being a landlord. You know, I just I do, I would man. say that you're one of the few that says that. I think there's a lot of guys that are in here. <laughs> like I do. That, yeah. that are in this business that wouldn't necessarily say it. And I don't think it's just this business. I think there's a lot of businesses like that. Like, yeah, I'm going to be careful who I call out, but there's, I think, a lot of people in, in university degrees that went oh, through gosh, it yeah. for the simple fact of, like, basically I'm doing it for everybody else, yeah. and I actually hate this business, or I'm just doing it because there's a good paycheck on the other end. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the same thing with landlord. I think there's a lot of people here that would say they really don't enjoy this. They're purely doing it because they understand the business and they see some upside. Yeah, and it's all gravy when everything is going your way and and it all sounds like, you know, a fun idea. And then you get these challenges and there's no question that our industry now has become riskier. Yeah. And another question that we got, and this is a question that's come up a few times, and interestingly it relates to the idea of refinances, is just how do you um, – I don't want to say muster the courage because everyone's courageous in their, in their own way, but how do you – overcome your hesitancy surrounding the risk of investing, you know, your life savings in your first rental property or, you know, quitting your day job to start a new business. I mean, you've started more businesses than I do yep. or, or, or I have. I'm sure people have asked you about, I can't believe, or said something to the effect of, I can't believe you did that. I wish I could do something like that. Yeah. Like, so we get this question all the time about um, how we're able to quote unquote, take these risks. What do you, what do you tell people? So, I mean, it depends. There's a couple of things. I think the first one, um, if we're specifically talking about real estate, that one there I find is a lot easier to stomach. Um, and the reason I say to everyone is you have an actual asset that backs yeah. what you're doing and you can't make up the valuations on those. Yeah, an appraiser can squeeze the numbers up and down, but if the place is worth a million, they can't tell you it's worth two. Yeah. They may be able to tell you it's reason. worth 1.2, yep. right? Yep. So there's there's only so much of that freaking around. So when there's an asset backing it, my thing is I'm like, look, like, the bank wouldn't be giving you the money if they didn't have confidence in what it is. They have an enormous team of people that analyze all this stuff, giant computer systems, hundreds of years of data. If they're saying that they're willing to extend you this amount of money for that property, they're not in the business to take over the property and they're not in the business to lose. No. So so there's a, there's a level of confidence that they have in the asset that you're, that you're owning that you can do it. Um, so I think that's a big one for me. There's a physical asset backing it. That they're willing to 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 bear like kind of go against and again it's a fairly simple standard thing like people need housing um, the systems are in place yep. you're not in, into a new world so for that that's kind of what I would tell them at the end of the day is, is there's an asset you can look through all the historical data also I'm I'm big on not buying stuff that just breaks even or like we go look at these properties that are on market today and it's like I think this is worth this two bedroom is worth eighteen hundred. It's rented at twenty two hundred, and then they applied a four percent cap rate. So like mm-hmm. they're at they're at above market rents. Mm-hmm. The cap rate is at bare minimum, so it's just breaking even, if that. And so that concerns me. I'm like, whenever we go into these, I'm like, let's take this rent down two hundred bucks. Take your interest rate from two percent to four or five percent. If your numbers still work, then I'm not super concerned because I'm like, yeah. now you now you have some time, and by the time it gets to the point where potentially your rents are down because the unit's been beat up, and you have to bring the rents down to get it filled and rates have gone up, that might be, let's say, five years from now or seven years. At that point, you will have built more equity in the property and you're in a safer spot. I mean, what you're really saying is like, look before you leap, right? Like, yeah. you, you will feel more okay with the risk if you're prepared and have done your research on things. Um, you say you just know? research, though, but it's, it's a mindset, right? Because people will say, I did the research. I see two bedrooms running for 2200 Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and, yeah. and it says it makes this much money. You did your research. Air but on let's, the side caution, let's err yeah. on the side of caution yeah. as well. Yeah. To, to double down on that. Like, expect that your property taxes are going to go up a bunch. Expect that your insurance is going to go up a bunch. Like, mm-hmm. run all your numbers heavy. Run all your numbers heavy that are expenses and run your incomes light and then see how things pan out. And if that's still okay, then then why? Then I'm like, not why not effectively? Like, I'm like, you know what? You yeah. have the cash. The return's still better than that. We know you can beat all these numbers, but you're going into this worst case scenario and you're still not in bad shape. Bank thinks it's worth it. Appraiser thinks it's worth it. Everyone, everyone's on board, right? Yeah, and the other thing too, I know we've talked about it at length, but exit strategy, exit strategy, exit strategy. 
if you already know there's a way to get out of that property, then that helps leave you that too. I mean, probably the biggest quote unquote risk I ever took. Um, I mean, when I bought the first true multi-unit, I was nervous because that was every dollar I had, but I knew I was leaving 20% equity in all my other properties. And so this thing where people are like, oh, uh, you know, you're doing these refinances. I hear people get in trouble with that and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, I'm refinancing up to 80% loan to value and you have 5% equity in your home in the suburbs. Yeah. You know, so I'm less exposed than you are. And I knew that if things went sideways, I could live in one of these units. I could yeah. liquidate them all. I mean, I had three duplexes just for really easy numbers, say they, or five duplexes, say for really easy numbers, they were worth 300 grand each. Well, that's 1.5 million. And even if I refinanced 80% of them, What's that? Uh, 1.2, right? Like, so I had yeah. 300 grand there. Like, worst comes to worst, I could sell them all off, have $300,000, and at least be, like, ready to start over. Um, so I never felt that exposed on it. But then when I took all that equity and bought another property, I had to think, okay, well, what's my exit strategy on that property? Well, it's that I knew I got a really good deal, and I could see the upside that if I had to turn and burn the property in short notice, I could. And so that fortunately worked out. I didn't have to come to that, but I knew there was an exit strategy there. And then I took the equity out of that and bought land, which at the time felt even riskier because there was no income coming in. No income in, on that, yeah. Right? So I had to know that my other business was at the point that I could float that for a long time. But again, I also got a really good deal that I knew my cost per door, which was like under 7000 uh, once I was done my development agreement, the land value would be like 25 a door. So yeah. again, I would say if I had to turn it and burn it, yeah. like if I put that on the market tomorrow at even 15 a door, yeah, oh, you know, you it would be beat. gone. Yeah, it, it, it would be gone in, in two seconds. So you have to have this exit strategy. But there's still the mindset. Like you have to – sometimes you can give people all the information. You can lead them to water. It doesn't mean they're going to drink. Yeah. I think the other thing that a lot of people consider, again, talking real estate specific, is they're like, well, I have to re-leverage my personal home to go do this. But the yeah. thing – and everyone's like – everyone's under this mindset, especially with their surrounding people that are non-investors, they're like, you got to pay down, pay down, pay down, pay down, which is true. But I I agree. Like, re-leveraging your personal home to go buy a sports car, not a great yeah, idea. Yeah, I know people that won't touch their personal home regardless of anything. Very but, true. Uh, and I, I get that and I respect that. Um, but then for some people, it's, it's a good way to get started, um, mm-hmm. especially yeah. now because there's a lot of people who have their personal home and they have a bunch of equity. But you got to look at it like, okay, I'm pulling this money out and look at what you're going to get as a return on it and look at what you're paying for interest yep. to, to float it in your house. But make sure that you're investing it. Don't just pull it out to throw it into a bank account and don't just pull it out to go buy a bad purchase. Like don't buy a like, depreciating asset or something that doesn't make you any income. That's how you got to stomach it. I I can't honestly tell someone to go do that and then go buy a car. Like I, that just yeah, seems yeah, of course. stupid. Yes, the interest rate's a little bit lower, but still the I would not put that much debt against my home, which also still leaves me available to go get more unsecured debt and to go make purchases like that. So it's like you got to look at it like okay, I'm going to take this 80 grand out of my house, but I'm also going to be collecting an extra 4 grand a month in rent. Once I pay all my bills over there, there's still 1200 bucks that I can put back against my personal extra mortgage payment. So that's that's what we have looking at. When yeah. looking at business debt, I can I think I can speak to that a little bit more. That one is substantially more intense. I can only imagine, yeah, because there you don't have a capital-based asset that no. you could potentially sell at any moment's notice. Yeah. Exactly. Like your 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 expectation to collect rent is about 97, 98% of the time you're gonna get your rent. Mm-hmm. As a business, like it could go any way. Prime example yeah. is COVID hit and there's a bazillion businesses that just got overnight shut down. Yeah. Right. And so you could be carrying all sorts of unsecured debt that you literally just signed on to do that. I think the the key with that and getting to a place that you can do that, first of all, it really comes down to being good operator knowledge and all those items, but it's also tailoring yourself to be comfortable with that. Like, I don't think anyone starts by saying, okay, my first business, I got a $10 million line of credit. Right. And we're going to go out and start this big, massive business. Yeah. You don't, don't do that for two reasons. First of all, you don't know what the hell you're doing, so you're going to screw up. Second 100%. thing being, uh, the stress will kill you. Like you, you just you're trying to make these payments, and you don't have a guaranteed uh, income. And that's why a lot of big businesses that do really well have these reoccurring payments, whether it's like a subscription of some sorts, right? Everyone wants to do subscription businesses now because right. it guarantees their ability to pay down yeah. the debt and redu- re- alleviate that stress. Gym memberships. You see a lot of all these startup gym memberships, yoga studios, cycling. That's yeah. what their model is based on. Because if you had to sell someone one bike ride every time, you're dead in the water. 
Yeah. You sell them a monthly. If you have money. If, yeah. Exactly. Gym memberships, uh, even car payments. That's why like car financing is great because for them, they're borrowing the money and they're relending it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, Netflix, all these tech companies, gaming now, like you don't buy video games, you can buy subscriptions to the video games. Every giant company is trying to convert their entire business model to subscriptions. Microsoft Office, you used to pay $300 right. for it. Yeah, now yeah. it's $29.95. Like yep. everything is subscription modeled. Because it just makes more sense on financing debt and being able to then grow your business because you can show this really consistent cash flow. Um, but getting, again, to getting to where I think you can handle the risk of it is you have to tell yourself. So you start small, right? Like, again, going back to all the, the funny things I've told you guys, like I sold paint, I did the lawn care, I did all these small things. In those businesses, I took little amounts of borrowing, took on little bits of risk, understanding what it takes to, okay, this is how incomes go, and mm-hmm. this is how, like it's, it's intermittent. And now with the contracting company that I have, we have very big operating lines of credit, and I need to understand, like, some months, the money's not there to make it. So we're literally using the debt to pay the debt, but yeah. then other months, we might get in the payment from three or four big jobs. We might get a couple hundred grand in a month, and then we can pay it down in those periods. Yeah, and so sort of the crawl, walk, run, because obviously, yeah. when you start the small business, your exposure, your your actual risk is smaller, and you just continue to learn and build up that tolerance to risk. The yeah. other thing we talked about it in another episode is... Um, well, we talked about two things and they're kind of related. One is how oftentimes people who are new to the country and have less of this Western idea of, oh my gosh, I'm afraid I'm going to fall out of the, the middle class yeah. and they're risk averse as opposed to people who maybe say, you know what? I don't have that much to lose and and have like this ad, ad, inherent adventurous outlook because they picked up and moved to another country. Yeah. You know, they are there to try anew. They've and, already taken yeah. the biggest risk in life. Totally. Of moving yeah. to a whole other part of the world where they don't know anyone necessarily. Like, just don't speak the language. New. Don't understand the know, culture. Don't speak the yeah. language. Don't have the business connections. Don't understand all the practices. Yeah. So then to go do that, like, they're already the master of risk taking. They've built the callus up that you sometimes need to take these risks. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about that and how you need to kind of overcome this fear that's maybe been instilled in you to stay in one spot. The other thing we talked a little bit about in an episode was this idea of the stick or the carrot and sometimes how people are so motivated by fear that they stay where they are as opposed to what you'd think, which is they'd be motivated by the carrot, the reward to try something bigger. But the reality is most people aren't motivated by that, right? And this is why when people ask me about risk, I'll often say like, well, listen, I don't know how that's going to turn out. Yeah. Right? If you take that risk and there's big upside, I know it could be amazing. It could be not amazing. Yeah. But I can tell you, if you do nothing, the real risk is that you're going to stay exactly with where you are. Always. So how unhappy are you in this moment? Because, you know, being content is the enemy of being happy. Yeah. Right? Like if you are satisfied, or I don't know if content is the right word, but being satisfied or, or comfortable where you are is the enemy of being happy. So yeah. what's the risk of going for it? I don't know. Maybe you lose some money. Yeah. Maybe, maybe things don't go your way. And and we in the Western world, the capitalist world, like that is embarrassing. And we put a lot of stock in that. But if you set that aside, you know, could you start anew if need be? And what would be the worst thing that could happen? I mean, it's different when you have kids. Like now I, I, I'm a little carefuler with my risks because I have children to, to take care of. Um, but there was a point in time like, well, if it doesn't work out, I mean, what's the big deal? Like, I'll live in one of the units. Like, I can I can scrape by. But I was more afraid of the risk of being average. Like, yeah. I was more terrified of that. And that's what motivated me. Not the whatever might come with being successful, but more like the fear of being average. And and that's my biggest hands-down number one thing. I say this to every single person I talk to is you got to do it for yourself. You need to be self-motivated. You can't be worrying about what everyone else does. For both things. So for the actual motivation aspect, you got to be pushing for yourself. Like you being worried about average is not because someone else told you that. That's your own internal fire that you want to be there for. Additionally, I think that's a big one is in today's North American culture, everyone's everything that they do is all over everything and everyone's involved yeah. and everyone makes comments. You you need you need to block out the well, everyone's noise. Everyone's out there faking the funk, right? Like Yeah, you need to block the noise. Yeah. If everyone, yeah, everyone's faking the funk. Like it... You, and you know what? Sometimes just do the stuff without telling anyone. If yeah. you if you're nervous and that stuff does bother you, and I get it, it bothers all of us. There's there's no way around it. Uh, Chandler loves good comments. Um, <laughs> on a side note, um, but yeah, but you need to be able to just do it. And sometimes if yeah, if you can just do it maybe privately and never bring it up until it happens, that's not the worst thing. And that's what yeah. I used to do too. A lot of the small stuff that I did, 
nobody knows. A lot of people laugh like you did that, and I was like, I was doing that the whole time we were friends. But yeah, yeah, I, I didn't feel confident in it because I was afraid that it might fail, and so I still tried to make it happen. And for me, I tried to make it happen, but I didn't advertise that I was doing it because I didn't want uh, the, the societal pressure on top of me that not only am I going to be angry at myself that I didn't make this work, then I have to hear take the ridicule from yeah. other people that this didn't work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing Instagrammable about a failed business, right? And people don't want to do that, especially when other people are, are on there celebrating wins, whether real or fictitious, right? Like, So it's yeah. tricky. You have to detach from that. And you have to just motivate of like, okay, how bad do I not want to be where I am? And then you have to take that risk and, and maybe put it in a context of like, well, it wouldn't necessarily be that bad if it didn't work out. And yeah. I mean, the thing too with risk is it ends up paralyzing people, which is another sort of question that um, we get a lot. And it's also something I struggled with, just this idea of procrastination. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know I struggle with procrastination, a lot of things that I do. And really, if you break it down, the reason people procrastinate is because we have d- evolved over time to avoid risk and to avoid discomfort. I mean, when we were out there in, I don't know, cave person times or the jungle or whatever, we did everything we could to survive and stay comfortable and safe. And that is the way our brain, even like the, you know, endorphins or whatever it releases to our body are different when we're comfortable versus when we are at risk. Yeah. You know, so you have to untrick your brain and, and reprogram it to fear something else, be it fearing mediocrity, be it fearing you know, regret, be it fearing some of these things, as opposed to fearing what the world kind of instills in us, which is this fear of failure, this fear of trying and not being successful, this fear of, of, you know, falling short, whereas opposed to just staying where you are and staying safe in the cave, right? You know, I think it's a bit of a generational thing. I'm I'm, now that I think about it a little bit, I think, I think a lot of the previous generation to us, um, a lot of them came from humble beginnings, and I think that's when things are really starting to pick up in general. And so they, a lot of them have come, I think on average, there was a lot more people with basically less money in, in, in the earlier 1900 range, like 1940, 1950, 1960. And so our previous generation went through that. And so it's not even necessarily a fear of failure, but what they instilled in us was like, do these things and really focus on having something stable. Because back yeah, then, totally. I don't think necessarily being in business was as glamorous as it can be today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of them said, okay, remove the risk. Because look, I know what it's like. I grew up on a point where eight of us lived in a, in a two-bedroom house. Mm-hmm. And we only had this much money. So now go and do these things. And they put a lot of pressure on this generation to get something very fixed and stabilized. Like I, everyone I yeah. know is like, yeah, I did this in, in university kind of because my parents pushed me to do it. And if you listen to them and why their parents did it, it was because their parents didn't necessarily do it at the time mm-hmm. and they had a lot of hardship in getting yeah. to where they are today and to try and alleviate that they want you to do something very stabilized and risk adverse no that's a good point i mean they were sold this idea of you know if you can just get your kid through university yeah they're going to be okay and increasingly now we're finding that's not necessarily the case no um and there's been a push against that there's a lot of great things that you can do without um a university degree but um with respect to procrastination, like, do you struggle with procrastination? Like, how do you overcome it? What are your methods to it? Or, or have you never struggled with that? I know how I have. No, I definitely have. I'm, I'm the master of procrastination. Like, I mean, like I was saying before, is I've, I've got books full of a million business ideas that I've wanted to start, and I've never kind of gotten to them. Um, and so there's always been kind of that that issue with me. And I still, to this day, wish a lot of these things I do now, I wish I had started them earlier. Um, so I think for me, getting through it, I th- a big one, honestly, was university. As funny as it sounds, university kind of forced me to step up to the plate because uh, you can't procrastinate in university. I, I did engineering, and they were especially hard on you. Like, yeah. it wasn't like if I procrastinated and I waited till the last day, unfortunately, due to the size of the whatever is the midterm or the assignment, I couldn't accomplish it. Mm-hmm. And so it forced me to learn that I have to do just get things done when I get them. Yeah. And so that kind of carried through into my business sense. And my ability to do business and all those things didn't really grow until I got to that point. Um, now I'm realizing now it's basically out of the fact, out of necessity that my procrastination has been kind of alleviated because like, if you don't do it, you're screwed. Like I can't, we can't not show up on closing day and at least even have something yeah. in the works. Yeah. Cause you'll just get sued. You'll get, you'll get absolutely destroyed. Yeah. Um, That's why these deadlines, I mean, we joke about them, but there's nothing better than a deadline, you know, to get you motivated. I still need yeah. those deadlines. I think that's human nature because again, 
And this, whenever I am struggling with something, I always try to figure like, why does my brain do this to myself? Like, why does my brain make me want to, you know, sit here as opposed to doing what I know needs to be done? And it comes back to that psychology deep embedded into our, you know, synapses to fear an uncomfortable situation. And it used to be like a fear in a saber toothed tiger, but yeah. now it's just like <laughs> fearing something that you don't want to do, something that is not immediately pleasurable in the moment. We are trained to um, prefer and have genuine better um, reactions physically and mentally and, and all this in our body to things that are comfortable as opposed to things that are not comfortable. But we all know that when we step out of our comfort, just as we said before at the start of this, we know that's where we're at our best. We know that's how we grow. And yet our brain tries to undercut us um, and sort of sabotage us. And for me, I like being able to understand that about my brain because then I'm like, okay, now I just need to kind of like reprogram my brain a little bit yeah. um, or get a couple little habits together because I'm big on like habits and habit stacking to slowly start changing my brain, positive reinforcement or any of these things. And I wish I knew, I wish I knew the author here. Uh, Tanner's going to throw something up over the screen, hopefully. Um, it was called, man. I love books. We, we got to do. If you guys, anyone out there, like knows any good books that you really recommend, fire them in. I'd love to. I'd love yeah, to read them. This one's same. called the Procrastination Equation, I believe. Um, you check it out. You'll you'll track it down. But there's this great equation that they set up for you're measuring your your motivation, and it's essentially positively related to your expectation and how you value something, and then it's undercut by your own impulsivity and any delay. So effectively. Um, the equation is that your ex expectancy and your value you put on something are your numerator and then your denominator are your impulsiveness and the delay. All that means is if you expect something to go poorly, then you avoid it, obviously, mm -hmm. right? But if you expect something to go well... Um, but it has no value. You know, but it has value. Like, you have to feel like confident in the outcome and then have a high value placed on it. And the value is just like your why. Why do you want to do this? Your expectancy is what we talked about before, risk. So when you're looking at your risk, you have to build your information base and pump up your own confidence. Make your plan, build the right habits, set your goal. So boom, your expectancy goes up. And then the value, why am I doing this? What are the outcomes I'm, I'm hoping to achieve from this? Whether it's improve my own life, whether it's have things that my parents didn't have, whether it's provide for the people around me, whether it's just to make the world a better place, whatever that is, you need to focus on your why and build that. So your expectancy times your value, that's bringing up your your numerator. And then your denominator, your things that undercut you, um, you know, your impulsiveness, which would be things like, you know, my natural inclination is to do, is to not act, right? I'd rather sit on the couch than go study. I would rather go for drinks than to work on that side project. I'd rather go to brunch than go to the gym. Yeah. You need to kind of reduce that down and channel that towards positive things. And then you need to, the last problem is time. And so you need to start putting these deadlines on yourself to shorten the delay to action. And it'll be easier to see when we've got the visual of this equation up there. But effectively, if you raise your expect expectancy of success, you raise your value as to why you're doing it, you lower your inclination towards laziness, basically, and you shorten your timelines to give yourself goals, boom, your motivation goes through the roof. It's really cool for people who are into that. It's maybe a little preachy, but check it out. It, it's awesome. Yeah, yes, a thousand percent on the delay one. I think that's one of the hugest values in there that makes a big difference. Yeah. Delay is so important. Like Shia LaBeouf, just do it. Like, <laughs> that is, I don't get the is, reference, but I like it. That is so important yeah. um, that you you do, like you need to just go. They say if, if you wait, if you're procrastinating with the idea, and it, the longer it takes for you to get started and possibly doing it, the likelihood goes down like so much exponentially. And that's what yeah. this is happening here. It's in, the, it's in the denominator of this fraction. Yeah. If you wait, like if you have an idea and then you kind of stew on it and kind of drag on and on and on for six months, 12 months, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. If yeah. you have the idea, you want to make it happen, jump in head first. Again, there's a chance you're going to fail. There's actually honestly a high chance you're going to fail. But the only way you're going to find out and you're going to keep the momentum and gain any actual traction and actual momentum is by is by doing it right off the hop. Also, and like all, all these things are related because, you know, if you change your 
how you perceive failure, right? And we talk about this, all your little biz- businesses, you're like, oh, and this one failed, and this one failed. It's like, no, like they were growing you to become the type of person who starts businesses, raises systems, and tries stuff. And yep. that's why you're successful now. So you have to change your perception of the obstacle, change your perception of the failure so that it's not a negative thing. And then yep. and when we talk about goal setting, we're really important to say, you've got to put a timeline on these things. So this idea of like, oh, I'm going to be rich by such, such a time or whatever, you need to put in systems that are a little bit shorter um, and te- set shorter term specific goals. Like this stuff is all super connected um, because then, you know, you, you view risk in a different way. The other two things that I'm going to add on to your fraction that goes on, I think, on the motivation equation is this is a hard one to be like, kind of make tangible, but making yourself busy allows you to do more, which I know sounds obvious and kind of stupid, yeah, yeah. but my concept is you don't necessarily need to be busy doing what's exactly related to that. Like even if you're busy by going to the gym or doing your favorite hobby, uh, like whatever, cooking a meal, like just filling in your time, then you're going to be like, okay, I only have two hours here. I'm just going to do this. But if you get up on a Saturday and you're like, I have nothing on the books besides yeah. potentially looking at this side project I want to do, yeah. I'll tell you right now, you're not going to get involved in your side project. No, it's but true. But if, yeah. if you got five things to do and you're like, I got two to four, I'm going to – that two to four, you're going to be focused and you're going you're gonna to work on your side project. And yeah. again, you don't have to get busy with things that you don't find enjoyable. Get busy with stuff that you love to do. Go for a hike in the morning. Uh, go out for a lunch. Like, all those things are fine. But it's creating like that idea that you're in this kind of routine and it's tailoring into that slowly. You don't expect to go from having weekends off and not really running that kind of schedule to now, okay, I get up at six on Saturday and I go till midnight, right? So just tailoring into that and then staying busy. I find like when the real estate, like as being a real estate agent, when that slows down a little bit, I find all my stuff slows down because right. I no. just kind of, I yeah. kind of drag on, even though I have more time. And your energy comes down My a energy bit. comes yeah. down big time. My energy comes down a, yeah. a, a, quite a bit. Um the second thing that, to add on there that I think is to consider, and I think you kind of mentioned it, is the feeling that you get from accomplishing the tasks you don't want to do. Yeah. Like, that's what I always need to remind myself. Like, there's a lot of things that I'm sure you'd find too that you don't want to deal with, whether it's like, okay, the bank wants me to put together another whatever, pro forma, and I'm not interested in doing so. So it just kind of sits there and I push it off for a couple of days and the broker's like, yo, where's yep. pro forma? I need this. Yeah. Um, I'm always like, oh shit. And then when I finally do do it, and I pass it in, I'm like, ah, oh, feels kind of nice. Like when I click send, I'm like, ah, oh, this is a so great good. feeling. And I'm like, sweet. I'm going to like celebrate with a little something, my little chocolate protein shake <laughs> and watch yeah. a little YouTube video or something, right? Yeah. And a lot of what we're talking about here does relate back to habits and, and things like that. But I'm going to share a couple of things that a mentor of mine told me, and I love them both. One of them is he says that the key to success is doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest possible level. Yeah. That is the key to success. Yeah. Doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. Yeah. That's what makes you successful. But the other thing he said is everyone's excuse for procrastinating, especially if it's something that they know could be good, yeah. right? It's one thing if it's like something that's going to be bad. I can understand wanting to put that off. But if it's something that's going to be kind of like has a good potential outcome, well, why would you procrastinate? They say, well, I'm just waiting to be in the right mood. I need to be in the right mood. Yeah. And what he said to me is that the – Mood never precedes the action or rarely precedes the action. Yeah. The action has to precede the mood. The mood will come after the action. One example is, you know, when you don't feel like going to the gym and you go and you get a pump on or whatever, and then, you know, you actually kind of get into it. But the one that he shared to me, which I enjoyed even more, um, and this is his example. It's like, you know, when you're with your, your significant other or your partner, right? And you're maybe not quite in the mood. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. But then sometimes someone initiates an action. <laughs> and yeah. then all of a sudden, you're in the you're mood. You're in the mood. Right? Yeah. So next time you have something that you think you need to do or want to do, but you're saying, I'm going to wait till I'm in the mood, yeah. remember that the mood does not proceed the action. It's the other way around. The action Try has this to with your partner and let us know how it goes. <laughs> but it's true. It's true for some of these things. Like I used to do it with when I was calling people, calling lead sources that I didn't want to call necessarily. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, I got to wait till I'm in the right mood. You know, I got to set up. I got to, you know, and I've done this sometimes with sellers of properties and then later the property sells. I'm like, oh my God, I just didn't take two seconds because I wasn't in the mood. Yeah. But then boom, you make the call. The call goes well. You're like, bring another one on. Then you want to hit everybody. Right? Yeah. You're in that um, zone. 
Yeah. Yeah, but it's the same like you were talking about when you accomplish one little task. This is why successful people are like make your bed in the morning because that reminds you that you're the type of person who cares about presentation, that cares about their space, and that gets things done. Yeah. And you start with making your bed and then you stack on top of that, you know, I'm going to make a shake for myself. And, you know, so I'm, a, you know, yeah. and you, you stack these things. And so making something maybe you don't want to do, sliding it in there in, in the in the framework or or in the scheduling of a very successful day. Yeah increases your likelihood of getting it done and you know what this is again this is a bit of a snowball effect once you kind of get the ball rolling it gets easier and it gets better yeah because then things, oh, yeah. things start to get gratifying you start to yep. achieve the things that you wanted to do then you are in the mood then you're always right? in the mood because yep. you're, you're in that world now you've created that environment for yourself that you're enjoying it uh to, to tie this back a little bit on procrastination i think on on real estate uh this is something i think you've mentioned a few times but uh paralysis by analysis oh yeah this, I think, yeah. is very common for a lot of our investors, and yeah. they've had to put it to the wayside. I think it was more common a few years ago because the market was soft, uh, and so you didn't necessarily have to act in a day. And so some of them, but a lot of those investors I find now are struggling to acquire property Yeah, because I'm like, well, they, they listed it today, and yeah, no, they decide they're going to take offers tonight. And they're just like, well, I didn't get time to run my numbers. And yeah, I'm or like, they're like, well, I passed on a property five years ago because blah, 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 blah. I'm like... Yeah, and you shouldn't have done that then, and now you're shouldn't be doing the same thing now. Yeah, yeah. So something something to consider, like two things. I mean, there's conditions in these properties for a reason, right? Yeah. Like, so if you if you do a financing clause and your financing's not coming together, it comes at sixty five percent. Like you can back out. It's not necessarily you mm -hmm. know what I mean. Like they can't expect you to come out with an extra ten percent if you don't have the cash. Um, and it's it's to be expected that you can do a seventy five. Um, and then additionally, you need to be able to kind of operate on a, on a fast scale if you want to be doing this kind of thing. Um, and sometimes going so heavily, like I know a lot of my clients want like every little detail. They want to see all the leases, all the little everything. And I'm like, honestly, if it gets down to the point where the details are that minute is going to make or break this deal, you probably shouldn't be in it anyways. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like yeah, it, like if you're buying a 12 unit yeah. and one, one lease's term is going to be the issue. Yeah. Then you're in trouble. Like, you, you shouldn't be buying this thing to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So. Which is why, again, when sometimes people ask me this and uh, you've probably had these people that overall go like, hey, man, I think I'm, I'm going to buy something, man. I think I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to do it. It's like, man, like you've been saying this for five years. Yeah. Right? And that tells me you may be dissatisfied with some elements of your life. Yeah. But you're content enough that you're not going to act. Yeah. Right? So I think I, we should do an episode sometime where we bring on some psychology person or something that talks about how our brain messes with us and kind of stifles us when we're trying to grow. But yeah. I think if we were to kind of summarize, you know, the, this episode, it would be one – you know, to embrace the idea of struggle and to celebrate the idea of failure so that you can then see it in a different light as opportunistic or just even, you know, making you better in some way, shape or form. And then maybe, you know, how to look at risk is, again, to understand your brain and why your brain has evolved to avoid risk, but then how you can understand that, switch it around and use it to empower you and, and conquer things like procrastination and, and to do things like build good habits and, and set good goals. 100% to what you said. Do one thing again, and just do it progressionally. Like, again, nothing has to happen overnight. You're not going to nope. switch into this. Yeah. Understand this is a journey. It takes years, like easily takes years uh, to become proficient at it and to be comfortable with it, Like, but do it in steps. And it's not going to be ultra rewarding to begin with. Yep. So you establish those small rewards for yourself, and eventually you'll get to a point where you're actually going to really start to feel it. But just, I, I think that's like a big one I find with a lot of people in this generation today is it's like, well, I did this for six months and where the heck is my... Oh, and, and full disclosure, and I'm not by any stretch I'm not, yeah. saying I, I've got this under control. Like, you are not going to reprogram your DNA, right? Yeah. Like, you're, you're not going to reprogram how your brain works. So this is a constant... This is why I come back to some of these texts and these ideas, and this is why I even like talking to other people about it, because it reminds me, you know, and... and, and it's been really helpful to me of late when we talked about the goal setting where you know, this idea, to, it, make, it makes you actually kinder to yourself when you understand this and you kind of just work to be a little bit better every day. Sorry yeah, I didn't get re uh, your obscure Shia LaBeouf reference. I don't think it's that obscure. Um, if some people could comment and let me know if they yeah, think it's obscure, yeah, this is gonna be that would be day. amazing. I think... Um, None of you got, like, I, I dropped uh, uh, the video? Mason Puffy. We need the video. A reference like broken glass everywhere. Thinking about the money puppet just don't care. And you guys didn't even notice what I was talking about. No, still don't get it. Japers, kids these days, man. Kids, kids are broken. Here it is. Volume up. <sighs> What's he going? What's he doing? Do it! <laughs> just do 
it! Right, can we have this audio? This audio is playing over this. Okay. There we go. Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it. Make your dreams come true. Is this true. meant to be ironic just or real? Do it. Uh. I love that it's on a green screen. You can put this over anything. While you're gonna wake up and work hard at it, nothing is impossible. It's been put over literally everything. Do you play this like for yourself on loop every morning? This is my alarm. This is my alarm in the morning. You're not gonna stop there. No. What are you waiting for? Okay. I also have a giant hand that comes out and smacks me under my bed, and then then he just starts screaming at me. (laughs) Get motivated, stupid. Yeah. Um. All right. So I think that's kind of our time for today. Unless you have any parting thoughts. No. I love talking about this stuff, man. I know some people probably sign up for real estate and or just like angry ranting, but I I just find this stuff so interesting. Yeah, no. I, I got an emergency plumbing successful. emergency plumbing repair to go to. Oh, mamma mia. Um, but uh, never ends. Yeah. All right. So, well, thanks guys. Check, check you out, it out next time. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, comment, like. Yes, smash the like button. Thanks guys. When, 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 when I was broke I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke I had rich habits. Uh.